This is a very brief passage. I'm going to read it a couple of times just to, so we can grasp this. Ephesians 4.1 Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Dear Father, we uh, thank you for your words in Scripture that you've given to us. Thank you for opening our eyes to uh, the truth of these words. Lord, I just pray that you would open our ears now and help us to uh, understand this next part of Ephesians, Lord, as we, uh, as we move into this, this next great part. pray that you would soften us, help us to understand it as you would have us to understand it, Lord. I pray that you'd bless Tom uh, with great teaching and uh, uh, give him the words you'd have us to hear, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Thank you, brother. Good morning. Some messages are more important than others. Nothing in the Bible is less important than anything else in the Bible, but some sermons focus on issues or points or principles of the Christian life that are more more central, more foundational than others. There is, There are few as foundational as this. So I hope you're awake this morning. I hope if you're not awake that you'll slap yourself a couple of times. I, I pray with all my heart that, that what we're looking at, what we're talking about this morning will have as profound an impact on you as it has on me and still is having on me. On June 6, 1944, Allied forces from the United States, Britain, and Canada predominantly, invaded the Nazi-occupied beachheads of the region of northwestern France called Normandy. Roughly 156,000 troops invaded by air and by sea. First, around midnight, by air, men dropped behind enemy lines, and then the massive, massive invasion by sea. The Allied commanders orchestrated things so that after the initial assault on the beach on June 6, only five days later, by June 11th, nearly 7,000 naval vessels had delivered more than 325,000 troops, 50,000 vehicles, and more than 100,000 tons of supplies onto the beaches of Normandy. Why was it necessary to approach that assault with such magnitude and such scope? Well, the Allied commanders knew that the only way they were going to to bring about a surrender of the German forces was to take the battle to German territory. And the only way that was going to happen was over land. And the only way that they could move hundreds of thousands of troops and all that equipment and artillery and ammunition over that much land, the only way to do that would be to have a very, very solid supply line. And so they took that, what became the most valuable beachfront property in the world based on the blood that was shed on that beach that day, and they laid claim to that land and they didn't lose it for the entire duration of the European campaign, and that was critical. And Hitler knew that the the number one the number one objective of his forces had to be to cut off the supply lines of the Allied forces. 
If you read about the Battle of the Bulge at the, the last big phase of that European campaign, Hitler did absolutely everything in his power to accomplish that, and he failed. And because he failed, he was defeated. Brothers and sisters, you and I are engaged daily in a battle of far, far greater consequence than the battle that ensued on the beaches of Normandy nearly 75 years ago. We're in the midst of a pitched battle that encompasses all of God's creation in the heavens and on earth. A battle that is being waged among both men and angels. We have a shrewd and powerful enemy with all the resources of this cursed world at his command. That fierce battle will be the last topic that Paul will address in chapter 6 of this epistle. But he's actually already been addressing it. He's been addressing it all along. I believe the entire letter is intended to fortify us on two battlefronts. There are two points of attack at which our enemy seeks to defeat us day by day in his militant effort to shut down the advance of Christ's kingdom on this earth through his church. His first point of attack is to cut off our supply line. And his second point of attack is to divide us from within. Paul is about to fortify us at that second point of attack in the second half of this letter. We'll see that the godliness that God commands of us as his children is is borne out by how we treat each other in the body of Christ. A relentless devotion to unity and godly love within the church is the heart of our assignment, our commission from Christ. And so starting next week, we'll see that when Paul talks about walking in a manner worthy of our calling, his theme is unity in the body as a preeminent priority. But beloved, if we are not fortified well on the first point of the enemy's attack, our supply line, we will be woefully vulnerable at the second point of attack. The enemy's valiant and relentless effort to divide us. Without the supply line, the battle would be lost. And that is why we are devoting an entire message this morning to one verse. It's really just a part of another of Paul's marvelous run-on sentences. This one verse, Ephesians 4.1, and actually one word in this verse, serves as the indispensable hinge between the two halves of the epistle to the Ephesians. And that one word in Ephesians 4 verse 1 is the word, therefore. If we don't get what that therefore is there for, our supply line gets cut off. When you look at the imperatives in this letter, you will quickly find that there is a very, very stark contrast between everything that comes before that therefore and everything that comes after it. Would anyone here want, uh, unless you were with us in our discussion on Wednesday morning or Thursday night with the youth, anyone else? like to hazard a guess as to how many imperatives there are in chapters 4 through 6, the second half of Ephesians. Give me a guess. 
Whoa, who said 60? She nailed it. There are exactly 40 structural imperatives, actual Greek imperatives. I counted them. I've got, if anyone wants them, I got them on a list right here. 40 Greek imperatives plus nearly 20 functional imperatives. Other forms, other Greek forms that are acting as imperatives. 60 commands in chapters 4 to 6. Now, anybody want to tell me how many imperatives there are in chapters 1 through 3? Exactly one. Exactly one. Remember. Remember that you were formerly lost and dead in your sins. You were formerly without God and without hope in the world until God saved you by His grace. That's the only command in the first three chapters. One command in three chapters, 60 commands in the next three chapters. Do you think that should get our attention? That's what you call a contrast. Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, I therefore entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The exhortation is for our walk to be worthy of our calling. Now, what does that mean? Well, our walk is how we live day by day. Our walk is the things that we habitually and continually do. And a walk worthy of our calling means a pattern of life that reflects the worth, the value of our calling. So we kind of need to know what our calling is, don't we? Paul says this calling is something that has already happened if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Something we already have. He says, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So what is that calling? I believe this is a point of considerable confusion among many in the body of Christ. And I pray that it won't be that we'll get it clear from what Paul presents this morning. We have a deeply rooted tendency to conflate our commission with our calling. The word conflate means to take things, two things that are supposed to be two things and make them one thing. It means to blur a necessary distinction. But when we treat our commission as if it is the same thing as our calling, we are committing a serious category error. We end up saying, in effect, our calling is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Sounds a little like a Yogi Berra quote. Not Yogi the Bear, but Yogi Berra, the great major league baseball manager and sometimes coach of bygone days. He had a great affinity for circular definitions. He's the guy who said, it's like deja vu all over again. He said, always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. He said, you can observe a lot by just watching. And the one, one that he said that I find actually great wisdom, and he said, when you, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. We apply circular thinking when we conflate our commission with our calling. We unplug our commission from the very supply line that makes that commission doable. 
we unplug Ephesians 4 through 6 from Ephesians 1 through 3. We need, beloved, we need to understand the distinction and the connection, the inviolable connection between our calling and our commission. Our calling, as Paul defines it in the first three chapters of this epistle, our calling is not what we're supposed to do. That's why the only command in the first three chapters is remember what you were before God saved you purely by His grace. Our calling is not what we're supposed to do. It's whose we are and what we have been given in Jesus Christ. That's our calling. And this is, this is not a minor point. Our commission is chapters four through six. And that commission from God is to walk, to put into actual practice day by day the way of living that is worthy of our calling. Means to live in a manner that is in keeping with whose we are and what we have been given. Does that make sense? I know I'm repeating myself, but this is not a minor point. All the things that Paul wrote in the first half of his letter, all of the declarations and every word of the prayers were written with the explicit spelled out goal that we would know and understand to the very core of our being the outrageous wealth that God has freely lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. Because if we don't, we can't do what God has left us here to do. The very life's blood of godliness will be cut off. Here's the calling that our way of living is to reflect. Here's the calling. It goes back to chapter 1. God chose us to be His in Christ before He ever created us or anything else. He predestined us to adoption as His sons. He gave us redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of all of our sins. He made known to us the mystery of His will. He brought us into His war room and He showed us His plan for the ages to bring together all things in heaven and on earth under the headship of one, of Jesus. He sealed us with His Holy Spirit, when we heard the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and we believe that message, He sealed us with the Holy Spirit as the down payment of our eternal inheritance to dwell with Him forever. And He promised us that the day is coming when He'll lay claim to His inheritance, which is us. And He will bring us into His presence. He made us alive when we were lost and dead in our sins. We talked about that in the worship. We celebrated that in the worship this morning. He saved us by grace because of His great love with which He loved us when we had absolutely no way to save ourselves. He raised us up with Christ and He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places <laughs> so that, Ephesians 2.7, so that he can spend the rest of eternity lavishing upon us the surpassing riches of His kindness to us in grace in Jesus Christ. He tore down every wall of division that exists between people. 
He made Jews and Gentiles into one new man, one building, one dwelling place of God, one body, the church that was created by Jesus Christ. In short, God has showered upon us the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's the calling. That's the calling that Paul declares is already ours in Jesus. And his earnest prayer for us is that God would make us know and comprehend the magnitude and the reach and the worth and the power of that wealth of spiritual blessedness and boundless love so that we will be filled up to all the fullness of God. And you know what happens when something is filled up all the way to the top and it keeps getting filled? It overflows. And that is where godliness comes from. Paul's prayer for us is that we would know and be controlled by our calling as the redeemed saints of the living God. So when someone asks you what your calling is, tell them, God called me to be His adopted child, to be His redeemed, to be part of His inheritance together with all the saints of God forever. So how does God then make us godly? Sanctification is God making our practice display our calling. Making us think and pray and speak and act in keeping with the outrageous wealth that He has made ours in Jesus Christ. How does that happen? How does God do that? Well, both the structure and the content of this sixth chapter letter give us indispensable insight into the answer, God's answer to that question. Now, I'm not proposing that the following statement is everything you will ever need to know about sanctification, nor is it everything the Bible says about sanctification. But I will say without any fear of misrepresenting our Lord that this is the heart of sanctification. This is the heart of every believer's practical holiness. The intimate, personal awareness of God's outrageous grace and boundless love toward us in Jesus Christ is the wellspring of holy living. It is the overflowing fountain of holiness. That awareness in the very core of our being is where holiness comes from. And that means that the deepening of our awareness of God's grace and love toward us in Jesus Christ is a relentless and daily pursuit for every single one of us and for us together. It means that we continually seek and pray for that awareness in ourselves and in our brothers and sisters. It means we talk to God daily in prayer about His grace and all of its marvelous facets, about who Jesus is and what He has done. It means that we talk to each other continually about His grace. I don't know about you, but I am easily distracted. And I need you. I need Christ in you to keep drawing me back and reminding me whose I am and what I have been given in Christ. Whose we are. It means we sing together with each other songs of thankfulness to God. Paul's going to talk about that later. Thankfulness. 
for His extravagant grace lavished upon us in Christ. It means that we continually appeal to each other to fix our hope completely on the grace to be revealed to us, to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ when He comes to claim His own. Because we talked about that, we pray, we, sorry, we sang that this morning. That hope, that hope is the anchor of our souls. Now please understand, I am not saying that grace is self-applying, that holiness is automatic. That all we have to do is bask in God's amazing grace and we will inevitably lead godly lives. If that were the case, the nearly 60 commands in the last, the second three chapters, chapters four through six of Ephesians would be kind of pointless. What I am saying is that there is no such thing as godly living without an abiding, pervasive awareness of God's extravagant grace and boundless love toward us in Jesus Christ. That's the supply line for the battle to which we have been appointed. That's why Paul spent the entire three chapter, first three chapters of Ephesians setting before us that extravagant grace, what he calls the unfathomable riches of Christ, before he told us to do anything. That, beloved, is why he spends the first 11 chapters of Romans laying out the mercies of God in Jesus Christ. 11 chapters that are, that are loaded, absolutely loaded with the miraculous grace of God that is brought to us, that is presented to us in the Gospel of Jesus Christ that makes His righteousness our righteousness. It's not until after those 11 chapters that Paul comes to chapter 12, verse 1, and he says, I urge you, therefore, I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice to God, which is your acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship. The supply line is the mercies of God. That's why in Ephesians 4, verse 30, right in the middle, we'll see this soon, but in in the middle of a section of exhortations in which Paul is telling us to to be careful and diligent about not dividing each, uh, dividing his body, not offending each other with ridiculous offenses because we're speaking unwholesome words and we're malicious and we're selfish and we're gossiping and we're doing all these things that deny the character of God. In the middle of appealing to us not to do such things, here's the essence, here's the heart of his rationale to us. Ephesians 4.30, he says, do not grieve, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's pointing right back to Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 where God says, when you heard the message, you believed the message, God sealed you with His Spirit as a down payment of your inheritance. He's saying, because that gift is yours, because that grace is yours, 
Don't grieve. Don't grieve God. That's why in Ephesians 5, Paul says, do not be partakers with those who practice the deeds of darkness. His rationale is, because you're children of light. You are of the light, therefore walk as children of light. He's not, he's not casting doubt on the identity of, of these who have believed the gospel of Jesus. He's saying, don't do what those who are of the darkness do because you're not of the darkness. You're of the light, so walk as children of light. You have received the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 15, passage that, that was spoken of in the worship this morning. Passage about the, the fact that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And after laying out this marvelous declaration that that which has been sown perishable will be raised imperishable, that that which was sown in dishonor will be raised in honor, that death has been defeated, that even, even death has no victory over us who belong to Jesus Christ. After laying all of that out, he comes to the one and only command in that passage. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why is it not in vain? Because the grace of God is already yours. It's yours. That's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul appeals to us, to the saints of the living God, and he says, Jesus is coming, and when He comes, He's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to be sudden. And so you need to be watchful. You need to be awake. You need to be vigilant. You need to be engaged in the things that honor God. And then He says, this is marvelous, He gives us the rationale, and He says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us that whether we watch or sleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. It's not just Paul. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 21. This is an astonishing passage. As I read this, some of you read along with me if you've got your Bibles. I want you to look for the knowing, the knowing that is the wellspring of holy living in this passage. It's a surprising passage. First Peter 1.13, Peter says, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. This is an uncompromising, uncompromising demand of God on us. And he says, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Pretty tough standard. Then he says, this is just astonishing. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on this earth. And you might 
look at that and if you stop there, you might say, oh my, maybe I've been wrong. Maybe I'm not a recipient of God's grace. I believe Jesus. I believe I'm a sinner lost and dead in my sins. I believe He's the only one who can save me. My only trust is in Him. But this says conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Maybe, maybe it's not settled. And then look where He goes. Knowing that, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Is Peter questioning the identity of the people he's addressing? He's affirming it. He's saying, because you have believed in Jesus, you need to know the cost of your redemption. Beloved, you know what I fear in this life? I don't fear that I am not the object of God's grace because God's promises are inviolable. He means what He says, and I know whom I have believed. Here's what I fear. I fear that in my life I will undervalue the price of my salvation. That my life, my walk, will not be worthy of my calling. That's what I fear. And I pray daily. I ask God, God, let that not be so. Humble me. Reveal Yourself to me. Make me know You so pervasively, so personally, so intimately. Make me to know the breadth and length and height and depth of Your love so that it will not be possible for me not to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. This is not just Paul. It's not just Peter. Hebrews 12.28, the writer of Hebrews, he talks at the end of that chapter about how we have received this kingdom and we're not any longer at the foot of a mountain that we can't even approach because of the holiness of our God. But instead, we've been made part of the community of God and, and of holy angels and of all of God's people. And he says, he warns us, he says, we must not reject the one who is speaking to us. And then he talks about the shaking that's coming. He says there's a shaking that's going to come down and it's going to shake all of God's creation. He said there are things that are shakable, created things, and they're going to pass away. And there are things that are unshakable and they're going to remain. And then in case the reader is thinking, oh wow, I don't know if I'm in the unshakable or the shakable. He says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, with fear and awe. That's a fear that attracts. Where does grateful service come from? 
We talked about it in the worship this morning. It comes from knowing that you're the object. Eternally, you are the object of God's mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. That's where acceptable service comes from. Beloved, everything else is filthy rags. We do not serve God to get something from Him. We serve God because He has given us the opposite of what we deserve. Forever. This is not just Paul. It's not just Peter. It's not just the writer of Hebrews. It's not even just the New Testament. In 1 Samuel 12.24, after the people of Israel demanded a king for themselves, and Samuel said, okay, Actually, God said, okay, Samuel, let them have their king. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me from being king over them. And then he told them, Samuel told them what it would be like with a king. And it didn't look real pretty. And they said, but we still want a king. And at the end of 1 Samuel 12, God said through Samuel to Israel, He said, only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things He has done for you. In Isaiah chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles, turn to that. Isaiah beholds what, by the way, what the Gospel of John declares to be a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay? Isaiah sees Christ seated on His throne, the train of His robe filling the temple, He sees and hears these marvelous angelic beings known as the seraphim and they are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, the whole earth is filled with His glory. And then the foundations of the temple quaked at their voice. And Isaiah, how did he react to all that? To beholding the glory and the holiness of Jesus He fell down on his face and he said, Woe am I, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I am ruined. My eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Was he ready to serve at that point? Actually, I think he was ready to hide. I think he was scared beyond anything he had ever experienced in his life. And then came grace. And God sent one of those seraphim with a coal from a fire, from the fire, the refining fire of God's own holiness. And that seraphim touched that coal to Isaiah's lips. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And then, beloved, then, God said, whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, Lord. Send me. That's how God makes people ready to serve. Grace. Not just Isaiah. There are many instances like that. We could look all day at people in the Bible. One of my others, one of the others that I think is just profoundly powerful is, uh, is Peter again. And, uh, if you go, there are two fishing expeditions that Peter had that uh, Jesus got involved in. Uh, the first is in Luke chapter 5, where it's very early in Peter's interaction with Jesus, and Peter and his 
his fellow fishermen. Peter's a professional fisherman, right? He and his fellow fishermen are, are fishing at the Sea of Galilee. They're very familiar with it. They know when to cast their nets and where to cast their nets. And they've, they've been fishing all night and they've caught absolutely nothing. And then Jesus shows up and he commands them to cast out into the deep water and let down their nets for a catch. And Peter says, that'll be a waste of time. But he does it reluctantly. Immediately they lowered their nets and the nets were so filled up with fish that the nets began to come apart. And they had to bring two boats together and the crews of the two boats just to get one net of fish out of the water. Luke 5.8 says that when Peter saw what Jesus had done, he fell down at Jesus' feet and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus said to all of the disciples, He said, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. But Peter had not yet, at that point, he had not yet grasped the boundlessness of the mercy and kindness and redeeming grace that God was going to pour out upon him in Jesus Christ. That awareness of grace did not take root in Peter's heart until after the cross. After Peter had proven the truthfulness of his assessment of himself as a betrayer and a denier, a sinner who was not worthy of Jesus. And after Jesus had proven the infinite measure of His grace at the cross. As Peter was denying Jesus the third time, Jesus was being carried away and Jesus looked him right in the eye. And that look was not a look of condemnation. That was the Lord of the universe catching the gaze of Peter so that very soon Peter would know he went to the cross for him. The next time Peter cast his net into the water at Jesus' command was in John 21, after the cross, after the resurrection. This time when Peter saw what Jesus had done, instead of cowering in fear and asking Jesus to depart from him, Peter hurled himself out of the boat and swam to shore as fast as he could so that he could be where Jesus was standing. Jesus was just as fearsome to him as the first time. Jesus had filled empty nets to overflowing yet again. But now Peter knew that Jesus loved him. He knew that Jesus had made him the object of his boundless grace forever. He had seen Jesus die to pay the debt that he knew he owed to God because of who he was. Because of his sin. Peter had come to know grace. He had come to know and believe the love that God has for him in Christ. And just like Isaiah, Peter was now ready to receive his commission from God. He knew his calling. He was ready to receive his commission from the Son of God. A commission that Jesus told him would bring about his death. That didn't dissuade Peter because now he knew the beautiful hope of his calling as a child of the living God, redeemed by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, saved forever. Again, I could go on with stories for a long time. Stories about Abraham and David. We could look at Paul's own conversion. It's a perfect example of this. 
In the rest of this letter, we will see over and over that Paul points back to our calling so that we will know the beauty of our commission. He'll command us to speak in a way that shows grace to others because God has shown grace to us. He'll tell us to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. He'll tell us to walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant aroma to God. He will tell us to flee from the deeds of darkness because we have already been made children of light. He will tell husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. The commission, the commission, beloved, comes from the calling. The very ground upon which we stand as we do on God's behalf the good works that He prepared beforehand for us to walk in, that ground is His amazing grace. The lifeline of our godliness is our calling as those upon whom God has lavished the unfathomable riches of Christ by bringing us into everlasting union with Christ. Grace is the supply line for godliness. Let's protect that connection. Dear Father, fill us with the constant awareness and proclamation and celebration of Your unfathomable grace toward us in Jesus Christ so that we may be filled up to all the fullness of our great God and Savior, ready to joyfully do all that You have prepared for us to do. We ask it in the name of our incomparable Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.